There is such a thing as a natural soldier, the kind who derives his greatest satisfaction from male companionship, from excitement, and from the conquering of physical obstacles. He doesn't want to kill people as such, but he will have no objections if it occurs within a moral framework that gives him justification, like war, and if it is the price of gaining admission to the kind of environment he craves. Whether such men are born or made, I do not know, but most of them end up in armies. But armies are not full of such men. They are so rare that they form only a modest fraction even of small professional armies, mostly congregating in the commando-type special forces. In large conscript armies, they virtually disappear beneath the weight of numbers of more ordinary men. There is 2% of the male population that, if pushed, or if given a legitimate reason, will kill without regret or remorse. What these individuals represent, and this is a terribly important point that I must emphasize, is the capacity for the level-headed participation in combat that we as a society glorify and that Hollywood would have us believe that all soldiers possess, end quote. From the book On Killing by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. Today I'm going to tell you about one of the 2% of natural warriors. His name was Chris Kyle, and he had over 160 confirmed kills. The real number is almost certainly much higher. Hello and welcome to Battlecast, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and today we're diving back into modern warfare with the epic story of Chris Kyle, America's greatest sniper of all time. It's also the story of the Second Battle of Fallujah in Iraq, one of the bloodiest battles in the Iraq War. But before we jump into today's show, I want to thank Jim from Redding, California, and Gary from Buckeye, Arizona for buying us around. I also want to thank Ben for hitting the donate button, and if you want to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit that make a donation button. But now, the epic and true story of a real American, more American than a lot of paper pushers shining the leather of their swivel chairs with their asses in Washington and the local university down the street from you. It's the story of Chris Kyle. Much has been written about Chris Kyle's early life. For example, Adam Bernstein, writing in the Washington Post, describes Kyle's childhood with these words, quote, Christopher Scott Kyle was born in 1974 and grew up on a ranch in Odessa, Texas. As a young man, he hunted deer and pheasant with a bolt-action .30-06 rifle and rode bulls and broncs in rodeos. When I grew up, I only had two dreams, he told the Dallas Morning News last year. One was to be a cowboy, and another was to be in the military. I grew up extremely patriotic in riding horses, end quote. Another author, Alexis Burling, provides a perfectly succinct and accurate description of Chris Kyle's early life in her book, Chris Kyle, American Sniper. So I'll just quote her, quote, Christopher Kyle was born on April 8th in Texas to parents Debbie and Wayne. Debbie taught Sunday school and worked at a juvenile detention center when Chris and his younger brother Jeff were in school. Wayne was a manager at Southwestern Bell AT&T and volunteered as a deacon at the local church. The Kyles went to church every Sunday morning and Wednesday evening. Of the four of them, Chris and his father were particularly close, end quote. Chris would later write this about his father in his autobiography, 
American Sniper, quote, My dad was a manager at AT AT&T, and as he got promoted, we had to move every few years or so. So in a way, I was raised all over Texas. Even though my dad was successful, my father hated his job, not the work really, but what went along with it, the bureaucracy, the fact that he had to work in an office. He really hated having to wear a suit and tie every day. I don't care how much money you get, my dad used to tell me. It's not worth it if you're not happy. That's the most valuable piece of advice he ever gave me. Do what you want in life. To this day, I've tried to follow that philosophy. In a lot of ways, my father was my best friend growing up, but he was able at the same time to combine that with a good dose of fatherly discipline. There was a line, and I never wanted to cross it. I got my share of whoopings when I deserved it, but not to excess and never in anger. If my dad was mad, he'd give himself a few minutes to calm down before administering a controlled whooping, followed by a hug, end quote. Again, we see that like Simo Heria, the greatest sniper in world history, Chris was raised in a very traditional Christian home, complete with God-ordained hierarchy, a family, and regular worship. Say what you want about traditional Christianity and probably other traditions as well, but the product of such upbringing makes good soldiers. Here's another quote. Quote, Anyway, it was in elementary school near Dallas that Chris first discovered his love of shooting. As soon as he was old enough to obtain a shooting license, he learned how to hunt deer, wild turkey, and small game animals such as rabbits and squirrels, end quote. I want to point out we noticed this same thing in our episode on Simo, who was the greatest sniper that ever lived. He was also an avid hunter from an early age. Now, Kyle's biographer picks up the story yet again, quote, When Chris was seven or eight years old, his father gave him his first rifle. Chris also enjoyed animals, particularly cattle and horses. He raised steers and heifers for the future farmers of America. Sometimes he won prizes at county fairs for best-groomed cow in the barn. Chris's real passion, though, was rodeo. When he was around 16 years old, he started riding bulls, but soon he switched to horses after he fell off a bull one too many times. Before long, saddle bronc riding became his specialty. In his beat-up cowboy boots and saddle bronc riding Wrangler jeans, Chris would squeeze his thighs onto the horse's sides, let the rest of his body go loose and whoop and holler for eight seconds as the horse bucked upward and sideways, trying to shake Chris from its back, end quote. Kyle would later describe his time in high school with these words, quote, Every high school has its different cliques, jocks, nerds, so on. The crew I was hanging out with were the ropers. We had the boots and jeans and in general looked and acted like cowboys. I wasn't a real roper. I couldn't have lassoed a calf worth a lick at that point. But that didn't stop me from getting involved in rodeos around the age 16. By the time Chris graduated from Midlothian High School in 1992 and started his first year at Tarleton State University in Stephenville, Texas, he was picking up shiny first-place belt buckles and winning rodeo competitions throughout the state. But then, as it often does for all of us, tragedy struck. At the end of his freshman year in 1993, a Bronco flipped over on him in the chute during an event pinning him to the ground. The fallen horse kicked and struggled so much on top of Chris that it knocked the young man unconscious. When Chris woke up, he was taking a bath in pain, like a second Odin hanging on Yggdrasil. Broken ribs, a dislocated shoulder, and bruised lungs and kidneys. He even had pins in his wrists with screws that stuck out of his skin to hold his own bones together. Kyle's injuries were so severe that doctors said it would take time, months, if not years, for him to recover. Here's how Kyle described the rodeo accident, quote, 
A Bronco flipped over on me in a chute at a competition in Rendon, Texas. The guys watching me couldn't open the chute because of the way the horse came down on me, so they had to pull him back over on top of me. I still had one foot in the stirrup and was dragged and kicked so hard I lost my own consciousness. I woke up in a life flight helicopter flying to the hospital. Probably the worst part of the recovery was the dang pins. They were actually big screws about a quarter inch thick, and they stuck out a few inches on either side of my wrist, just like on Frank. Frankenstein's monster. They itched and looked strange, but they held my hands together, thank God. End quote. The point of this story is whether Chris liked it or not, his rodeo career was over. It was time for a career change. There were hundreds of Iraqis who would regret the day a horse threw Chris Kyle half a world away at an event they knew nothing about. Even now, Muslim women still weep for the men Kyle took. Please don't mistake me. I'm not making fun of those women or those families. Such is the cruel fate of mankind, of all of us. Such is the bitter way our fates are intertwined. And what about you, listener? Perchance, is there some young man who just got a felony record for a petty drug-dealing crime and now his employment chances are shot forever? Will he meet you in some dark street in Montreal or Los Angeles or Stockholm? The string of your fate is already spreading out into the misty future until one day the string is cut. Chris explains what happened next in his book American Sniper, quote, My rodeo career was over, but I continued partying like I was on tour. I ran through my money pretty quick, and so I started looking for work after school. I found a job in a lumberyard as a delivery guy, dropping off wood and other materials. I was a decent worker, and I guess it showed. One day a fellow came in and started talking to me. I know a guy owns a ranch, and he's looking for a hired hand, he said. I wonder if you'd be interested, Chris. Holy hell, I told him. I'll go out there right now. And so I became a ranch hand, a real cowboy, even though I was still going to school full time. Out there on the range, I had a lot of time and space to think about where I was headed. Studying and classes, they weren't my thing. With my rodeo career ended, I decided I would quit college, stop ranching, and go back to my original plan. I would join the military and become a soldier. Since that was what I really wanted to do, hey, there was no sense in waiting. And so one day in 1996, I made my way to the recruiters determined to sign up. End quote. All of us are rats in a race. Shakespeare called us flies and said the gods make trouble for us for their own entertainment. Orthodox Christians say God controls our fate from before we are born, and so there is no luck, only a predetermined, predestined life path for all of us. Others say there's just pure dumb chance, random luck, sending one man to the grave and another to the mansion, creating worlds and universes out of nothing. There's no reason for any of it. Camus called it an absurd life and an absurd world, meaning nothing. Keep these ideas in mind as I tell you about Michael and Amy Tiemann. Of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Luck or God, depending on your point of view, has blessed Michael and Amy, multimillionaires, who freely admit much of their success comes from luck. NPR reports, quote, Michael, an executive at the software company Red Hat, was a pioneer of open source software back in Silicon Valley where he started a company in 1989. I spent two years trying to gin up the interest among the business community to start a company for me, and I would be a technical resource, Michael says. I failed to attract any interest whatsoever. 
That's when he realized, he says, that if nobody was interested in starting this company, I'd have no competition. And if I had no competition, how could I fail? With that in mind, he recruited two friends to join him, each pulling $5,000. I only had money in my checking account to post the first $2,000, Michael says, laughing. So I was already $3,000 in debt to my co-founders when we started the company. But 10 years later, they sold that business for $697 million. To Michael and Amy, luck has played a tremendous part in achieving their financial status. They were both raised by educated parents who paid for them to be educated in turn. Michael at the prep school Andover in the University of Pennsylvania. Amy at Brown and Stanford Universities. We understand that we've been very, very lucky, Michael says. And luck, he believes, can often be a whole lot more significant than intelligence. When I was living in Silicon Valley during the dot-com episode, there were many people who were far less intelligent, objectively, than many of my friends, he says. And they were amazingly wealthy because they were amazingly lucky, end quote. Now, why did I tell you that little vignette? Because so much of our life is out of our control. One small decision, like not walking into a coffee shop and you never meet your wife. And then, because you failed to walk into that one shop, your daughter, the most important person in your life, is never born. Because think of it, your daughter is a unique combination of you and your wife. And if you never meet your wife, then that unique combination of your daughter could never exist. God or fate is gaming the system. Do you really think all of your life is just luck? Or is it really a curse and blessing according to some purpose? Meanwhile, half a continent away from Michael and Amy, the dice were rolling for Chris Kyle. He had decided to join the military, and he went to a strip mall where the various branches, Marines, Army, Navy, and Air Force, all had recruiting offices. He had wanted to join the Marines, and so he went to the door and gingerly tried to open it. Nothing happened. That's when he noticed a small sign on the door, out to lunch. And that's the only reason Chris Kyle never became a Marine, because some recruiter decided it was time to eat some General So's chicken and fried rice. Chris was turning to leave the strip mall when an Army recruiter stepped into the hall and delayed him. Hey, why not come in here? The recruiter asked. Chris shrugged, why not? And the two men talked for a while, but there was a problem with the Army. Kyle wanted to go into Special Forces, and you had to be a sergeant before you could go into the Army Special Forces. Instead, the two men talked about Chris becoming an Army Ranger. Chris was interested in the Rangers, but something just didn't feel quite right. I'll think about it, Chris said, and he walked to the door. But Providence had other plans for Chris Kyle. On his way out, someone called to him. Hey, you, the man said. Come on over here. It was the Navy recruiter. Chris picks up the story, quote, I walked over. What were you two talking about in there, he asked. I was thinking about going into Special Forces, I said. But you have to be an officer, so we were talking about the Rangers. Oh yeah? Have you heard about the Navy SEALs? At the time, the SEALs were still relatively unknown. I'd heard a little about them, but I didn't know that much. Why don't you come in here, said the sailor. I'll tell you all about them. The recruiter started telling me about the Mission SEALs and their predecessors, the UDTs, and all they had completed. There were stories about swimming between obstructions on Japanese-held beaches and gruesome fights behind the lines in Vietnam. It was all badass stuff, and when I left there, I wanted to be a SEAL in the worst way, end quote. A few days later, Chris returned to the recruiter and signed the papers. He was going into the Navy and was promised a chance to be a SEAL. But then, during a physical, a doctor discovered his previous accident with a horse, and the Navy rejected him. For the next three years, Kyle worked odd jobs on ranches across the western United States. That's when Providence intervened again. It was a phone call. The Navy, out of the blue, three years too late, 
was calling Chris and asking him to become a Navy SEAL. They needed him. Kyle couldn't believe it. When he picked up the phone, he was little more than a handyman on a path to nowhere. When he hung up the receiver, he was on the path of heroism, Hollywood blockbusters, and best-selling books. God or dice, divine or chance, Camo would say it's impossible for us to ever know. But the old man in the work shirt bowing his head at the diner knows the answer. It's too bad many of you never listened to him. And so, in February 1999, Chris joined the Navy. Now, he hated Navy boot camp, wouldn't we all? Saying it was designed to teach men how to sit on boats. He wanted a challenge, and so when the next open spot on the Navy SEALs training course was held at the Naval Special Warfare Training Center in Coronado, California, Chris volunteered for the course. Alexis Burling provides a great overview of the course, so I'll just quote her quote. It was a six-month commitment, including five weeks of teaching, to include basic physical and mental preparation for the rigorous training that would follow. Three stages of instruction then followed. Eight weeks of physical conditioning, eight weeks of diving, and nine weeks of land warfare, patrolling, demolition, marksmanship, basic weaponry, and land navigation. Kyle knew the course was brutal. It included relentless drills at all hours of the day and night. Training schedules allowed barely any sleep at all, sometimes fewer than four hours a night. And he could get kicked out of the program any time for failing to finish an exercise. Kyle was shocked to realize just how difficult Phase 1 physical conditioning turned out to be. All recruits were required to do at least 100 sit-ups and 100 push-ups in two minutes and 20 pull-ups at a minimum. They were forced to swim in the ice-cold ocean for 500 yards, wearing heavy fins, in fewer than nine minutes. And they had to complete at least a 1.5-mile run on the sand dressed in boots and pants. It felt similar to running a marathon without any preparation three times per week before sunrise. Then there was Hell Week. For nearly six days of around-the-clock training and tests on what they had learned, Kyle and the other SEAL recruits were subjected to 132 hours of rigorous, punishing exercise. Running, swimming, jumping, slogging through wet sand, carrying heavy metal boats on their heads while instructors screamed orders and hosed them with freezing water. Flashbang grenades exploded in the background for extra effect just to make sure the men were still awake and feeling fine, end quote. Kyle would later summarize the course in his own words with this succinct summary, quote, Essentially, the instructors beat you down, then beat you down some more. Getting through the training and being a SEAL was more about mental toughness than anything else. Being stubborn and refusing to give in was the key to success, end quote. But Chris was in excellent shape. He was 6'2 and 220 lean pounds of pure American warrior, and his mind was in excellent shape too, steeled and steeped in old-fashioned American hierarchical fundamentalist ethics. There was no bending his backbone, unlike most of the snowflakes dyeing their hair and dancing on TikTok. You want money? You want respect? Steel can get those things better than money. Kierkegaard said purity is pursuing one thing to the exclusion of all others. Chris Kyle pursued the path of the warrior to the exclusion of any other considerations. And you've heard it said that your feelings matter, but I tell you to conquer your feelings and turn your backbone into rigid steel. You've heard it said that your self-worth matters, but I tell you unless you view yourself as worthless and needing to be mastered by yourself like a second Odin, then you can never achieve victory. You've heard it said that your opinion counts, but I tell you your opinions are worthless. Your actions, not your mouth count. 
turn your actions into steel. Then you will have victory. Then you will know glory. Like Chris Kyle, like Simo Heriha, like Beowulf. What are these names but signs? Flags flapping in the wind on the path of the mountain to victory. Who else would bring you truth like this? Life is hard, and peace is an opportunity. You've been given a great opportunity, my overweight Americans. Don't squander it anymore, because there's a mountain. There is another way, past the cheap Chinese trinkets, past the bored, annoyed strippers, past all the noise corrupting your phone and the Lord's airwaves. There is a light that never dims. I'm shining it for you now. Anyway, to make a long story short, Chris's time in the SEALs training was brutally hard, and then life, as it always does, threw up a roadblock. Chris hadn't mastered deep diving, and it came back to haunt him. Kyle's biographer picks up the story, quote, To do a deep dive successfully, it is important to keep the pressure in the inner and outer ears equalized. During one of Kyle's initial dives, he failed to pop his ears correctly. The built-up pressure perforated his eardrum, causing blood to pour out of his ears, eyes, and nose when he swam back to the surface. Despite this gruesome scene, Kyle's injuries were not that serious. Still, after a trip to the doctor, he was ordered to take a leave of absence so he could recover. Luckily, he was not dropped from the SEALs program altogether. He would need to wait until the next class of SEAL recruits came through before continuing his studies." End quote. And of course, as you already know, Kyle made it through the course and became a Navy SEAL. He would later write that after SEALs training, he was more physically and mentally exhausted than he had ever been in his life. Only 24 other men, or 10%, of Chris's class made it through the training. After a few more weeks of training, Chris won his golden medal badge as a fully qualified Navy SEAL, and he was assigned to SEAL Team 3. Now Chris really was one of the best of the best. Soon, in combat, he would prove his worth. But first, something unexpected happened. Chris met a girl. In April 2001, just a few weeks after getting his golden badge, Chris was shooting pool with friends at Malone's Tavern in San Diego when he saw a woman sitting at the bar. She was one of the most beautiful things he had ever seen in his life. Her name was Taya Studebaker, and when Taya found out Chris was a Navy SEAL, she insisted she didn't want to date him, let alone marry him. Besides, Taya lived two hours away, but Chris was a real man. And when he wanted something, he went all the way. He kept pursuing her, and eventually, Taya found there was no man like Chris. She fell in love with him, and the two were married in Nevada on March 16, 2002. By this time, Chris had still not been deployed to a war situation. It wouldn't be long, and he would be. Now, you have to remember the United States was galvanized by September 11th, and as a consequence, America would be going to war to punish those responsible for the terrorist attack, at least ostensibly. Kyle's biographer picks up the story, quote, In September 2002, Chris shipped out to Kuwait and then the Persian Gulf off the coast of Iraq. He and the rest of SEAL Team 3 would spend the next few months on visit board search and seize duty, trying to stop millions of dollars of oil and weapons from being smuggled into the region, end quote. In the meantime, President Bush was ready to overthrow Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein, and after gaining approval from Congress in March 2003, Bush ordered American troops into Iraq. Chris was one of the first soldiers deployed. On the morning of March 20th, 2003, Kyle and SEAL Team 3, also called Charlie Platoon, were ferried by helicopters into Iraq. Thousands of British soldiers and American Marines were simultaneously crossing the border. 
U.S. warplanes dropped 2,000-pound bombs as American warships in the Persian Gulf shelled targets across the length and breadth of Iraq. This was a full-scale invasion. Thomas Ricks describes the onslaught America unleashed in the early morning hours of March 20th with these words, quote, Combat commenced on March 20th, 2003 in Iraq. It was still the evening of March 19th in Washington, D.C., with a volley of cruise missiles and bunker-penetrating bombs against Dora Farms, a group of houses sometimes used by Saddam Hussein, located in a palm grove on the western bank of the Tigris in the southern outskirts of Baghdad. It was hoped Saddam Hussein was there, but he was nowhere near the houses. The ground attack began at dawn on March 21st when it was still March 20th back in Washington. That's the reason some accounts differ on the date. The total U.S.-led invasion force consisted of fewer than three army divisions plus a big marine division and a British division. Underscoring the relatively small size of the force, there were just 247 army tanks in the force driving into Iraq from Kuwait and about an equal number of Bradley fighting vehicles. The entire ground invasion force amounted to about 145,000 troops, including the British contribution. They were attacking a weakened Iraqi military that was one-third the size it had been in 1991, but which still fielded about 400,000 troops and 4,000 tanks and other armored vehicles. More significantly, the Iraqis also had in waiting tens of thousands of irregular fighters, which would form the core of the insurgency against American occupation in the coming years. The 3rd Infantry Division, despite its name, it is a unit heavy in tanks and other armored vehicles, sprinted about 90 miles from the Kuwaiti border across the desert, to An Nasiriyah, where it seized a key airfield and, even more importantly, some bridges over the Euphrates. After turning those key spans over to the Marines, the division turned left and charged northward along the western banks of the Euphrates towards Karbala. The Marines secured the southern oil fields, then moved north and began crossing the Euphrates. In the meantime, British armored forces peeled to the right from Kuwait to besiege Basra, Iraq's second biggest city. Much smaller numbers of special operation troops swarmed into the far west where their mission was to prevent Scud missile launches against Israel and into the north where they linked up with Kurdish fighters. It didn't take long for the Iraqi side to begin operating unconventionally. The first taste of what lay in store for the Americans in Iraq for the next several years began on March 22nd when Iraqis, dressed as civilians and indistinguishable from other civilians, attacked an American cavalry unit. From March 22nd on, America would be involved in a grueling guerrilla insurgency. End quote. Chris Kyle was there on the front line from day one. He later described his first taste of combat and first confirmed kill with these words. Quote, we landed on Al Fal Peninsula and secured the oil terminal there so Saddam couldn't set it ablaze as he had done during the first Gulf War. Now we were tasked to assist the Marines as they marched north towards Baghdad. The rifle I was holding was a 300 Win Mag, a bolt-action precision sniper weapon that belonged to my platoon chief. He'd been covering the street for a while and needed a break. He showed a great deal of confidence in me by choosing me to spot him and take the gun. I was still a new guy or a newbie or rookie in the teams. By SEAL standards, I had yet to be fully tested. I was also not yet trained as a SEAL sniper, but I wanted to be one in the worst way. I still had a long way to go. Giving me the rifle that morning was the chief's way of testing me to see if I had the right stuff. 
We were on the roof of an old run-down building at the edge of a town the Marines were going to pass through. The wind kicked dirt and papers across the battered road below us like in a western movie. The place smelled like a sewer. The stench of Iraq was one thing I'd never get used to. Marines are coming, said my chief as the building began to shake. Keep watching. I looked through the scope. The only people who were moving were the woman and maybe a child or two nearby. I watched our troops pull up. Ten young, proud Marines in uniform got out of their vehicles and gathered for a foot patrol. As the Americans organized, the woman took something from beneath her clothes and yanked at it. She set a grenade. I didn't realize it at first. It looks yellow, I told the chief, describing what I saw as he watched himself. It's yellow, the body. She's got a grenade, said the chief. That's a Chinese grenade. Shit, take a shot. But shoot, get the grenade. Shoot, the Marines, they need. I hesitated. Someone was trying to get the Marines on the radio, but we couldn't reach them. They were coming down the street, heading towards the woman. Shoot, damn it, said the chief. I pushed my finger against the trigger. The bullet leapt out. I shot. The grenade dropped. I fired again as the grenade blew up. It was the first time I'd killed anyone while I was on the sniper rifle. And the first time in Iraq, and the only time I killed anyone other than a male combatant. It was my duty to shoot, and I don't regret it. The woman was already dead. I was just making sure she didn't take any Marines with her. It was clear that not only did she want to kill them, but she didn't care about anybody else nearby who would have been blown up by the grenade or killed in the firefight. Children on the street, people in the houses, maybe her own child. She was too blinded by evil to consider them. She just wanted Americans dead no matter what. My shot saved several Americans whose lives were clearly worth more than that woman's twisted soul. I can stand before God with a clear conscience about doing my job, but I truly, deeply hated the evil that woman possessed. I hate it to this day. Savage, despicable evil. That's what we were fighting in Iraq. People ask me all the time, how many people have you killed? My standard response is, does the answer make me less or more of a man? The number is not important to me. I only wish I had killed more. Not for bragging rights, but because I believe the world is a better place without savages out there taking American lives. Everyone I shot in Iraq was trying to harm Americans or Iraqis loyal to the new government. I had a job to do as a SEAL. I killed the enemy, an enemy I saw day in and day out plying to kill my fellow Americans. I'm haunted by the enemy's successes. They were few, but even a single American life is one too many lost. End quote. I want to point out Chris's essentially correct ideas regarding protection. He takes his duty as a protector of Americans very seriously, as any true warrior for a people should. This is because the foundation of all political systems is protection and therefore obligation. Chris Kyle embodies what all political leaders, police, and military personnel should embody, total and complete devotion to protecting his people. Now I want to tell you about Immanuel Kant. You're probably thinking, what the hell does Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher who lived 300 years ago, have to do with Chris Kyle's story? The answer is everything. Now, Immanuel Kant was a man with a problem. He had a problem that has infected almost the entire ruling stratum of the West. He had lost his faith. I'm talking about Christianity. This, as René Guénon and Dostoevsky point out, made Kant totally alienated from the rest of humanity. Most of humanity throughout its history, and even today, has been and are deeply religious. I know a lot of you Americans are not. I'm not making fun of you. You are the product of 300 years of this weakening of the Christian religion in the West. But you are not the world. So here's Kant, alienated from most of his own people at the time, and even today probably, and also from the rest of mankind. 
Kant decided he's going to set up a new religion from his own mind without any divine sanction whatsoever and make his religion binding on people all over the world. You can see the conflict inherent in the very idea of doing this. That's why Carl Schmitt says liberal humanism is so dangerous because the enemy, instead of being theologically wrong or misguided, is no longer human and by his very existence is jeopardizing utopian world peace. For the humanist, the enemy is outside of humanity and therefore anything can be done to him. And if you don't believe me, just ask the hundreds of thousands of dead Iraqis and Afghans who went to Allah in the past 20 years at the hands of American bombs and shrapnel. All right, so Kant writes a pamphlet entitled Perpetual Peace. In this pamphlet, he outlined how Western men could force perpetual peace on the world. Here's what he came up with, and I'm paraphrased, quote, quote, No treaty of peace is valid if one of the parties secretly plans to go to war in the future. Two, no state large or small shall be acquired by another. Here's where the foolishness really begins. Almost all small states are dominated by another state. Sovereign is he who decides. If Ukraine can't make peace without the United States allowing it to do so, then Ukraine is no longer a real sovereign state. Real states make sovereign decisions. Also notice Kant no longer has confidence in Western imperialism. He's calling for the destruction of Western empires, painting his own members of his own civilization who have already left Europe as evil. And please note, I'm not saying this is wrong or right. I'm simply describing what Kant is doing. Number three, standing armies shall be abolished in the course of time. The problem here is without an army, a state can no longer provide protection and would therefore cease to exercise sovereignty over its people. Number four, no national debts shall be contracted which influence the external affairs of a state. This means money will no longer have influence in the external political affairs of men. John Rawls says in his political liberalism, the corrupting influence of money is one of the deepest challenges to liberalism. And to put it mildly, in almost all political systems of which humans have adequate records, force, and or monetary corruption has existed. Kant is calling for money's international influence to be abrogated. It might work if Kant was trying to make peace for a world full of Amish girls or post-Christian social scientists in Vermont, but in the real world, these ideas have never and will never work. Kant is ignoring empirical observation and attempting to create a world that doesn't exist and has never existed. Your current leaders are doing the same thing in the West today. Number five, no state shall violently interfere with another state. Again, Kant's ideas are flying in the face of all human history. Humans need protection, and I will point out, it is the safest populations in the Western world who are most committed to Kantian humanist ideas. It's easy to talk about violence being wiped out when you're sitting safe behind two oceans on a rich continent in America. It's different when you're a tiny Christian nation like Armenia, surrounded by hostile and strong neighbors. Then you want protection. Anyway, Kant goes on to call for a federation of Republican states or a world government. Does that sound familiar? Also, he says strangers, or in other words, immigrants, must be treated with hospitality and helped. Why? Because strangers have a universal right to the world. Now, this last point is pure atheism. According to all traditional religions, the earth belongs to God or Allah or Yahweh, and everything in it belongs to him. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything and all the people in it. And it's written in Acts 17. God marked out the nation's appointed times in the history, and he set the boundaries of their lands, end quote. So the earth doesn't belong to all mankind. Rather, all the earth belongs to God, and God gives it to whom he chooses. Carl Schmitt, one of the best social scientists of all time, in his book, 
the nomos of the earth makes the same point. So this isn't Luke Crazy Wolf coming up with these ideas. And according to the Christian tradition, the only reason men even exist is because God made them for his own pleasure. And that's according to Revelation chapter 4. We find the same idea echoed in the Jewish idea of a chosen people and in the conquest of the Holy Land. I'm talking about Palestine. This idea is the source of your property rights in America. Without this idea, your property is very insecure, Americans, Canadians, Brazilians, and South Africans. This is why your forefathers didn't start speeches by saying 50 members of a certain tribe lived in Massachusetts 300 years ago before we meet here today. According to their worldview, God gave his people America. How can God steal from himself? And so, to make a long story short, Kant has basically declared war on every traditional society on the globe, not just Christian ones, everyone, with this one stipulation, and all in the name of world peace. Now isn't that cute? The hundreds of thousands of Muslims who are dead in Iraq as a result of it don't think it's too damn cute. Okay, do any of these ideas sound familiar? They should, because we are living in their logical outcomes. And for those of you who believe in Kantian humanism, I will only point out that even Kant, on page 117 of the 1917 edition, admits that peace among men, let alone states, is not, quote, natural, but it must be established by leaders. Again, sound familiar? Kant is calling for policymakers, managers, to control our lives, even to the point of violating deeply held religious beliefs, which I might point out the policymakers themselves can't prove are not true divine. Now, why did I tell you all of this about Kant? Because Kant's ideas are the reason you often don't feel safe on the streets in Los Angeles, in Malmo, in Sydney. The politicians and rich opinion makers who guide the Western world don't want to protect you. They want to set up a world federation and protect the entire world. They have an outlook that is different from normal people. Because let's face it, most people want two things. They want perpetual or almost perpetual physical safety coupled with economic prosperity. That's what most people want in the world. The leaders of the Western world are trying to implement Kant's worldview, and they oppose it on their own populations and foreign populations. That is why they are not completely devoted to protecting their own populations. That's why the very idea of protection and obligation just feels wrong to them. They really, sincerely want to protect the world. And so many, for instance, Noam Chomsky, denigrate Chris Kyle in his worldview, imply it is somehow evil. I would only point out, according to Chomsky's worldview, evil and good don't exist. So how can Kyle's views even be wrong or evil if there is no objective standard of right or wrong in the first damn place? Chomsky implied Kyle was a psychopath when he said this about Chris, quote, The deadliest sniper in American history is a guy named Chris Kyle. He wrote memoirs, and in the memoirs, he describes what the experience was like. Kyle, he regarded his first kill as a terrorist, when this woman who walked into the street with the grenade when the Marines were attacking her village. But we can't really attribute that to the mentality of a psychopathic killer, because we're all tarred with the same brush, at least insofar as we tolerate or keep silent about official policy. Let's go back to Chris Kyle. Some of his exploits were in Fallujah during the Marine attack on Fallujah in November 2004, one of the worst war crimes of the invasion itself, the worst war crime of the millennium. Here, it is regarded as an example of marvelous heroism of our soldiers in liberating Iraq. The first day of the attack, the front page had a big picture of a hospital. The Marines had attacked a hospital, which is, of course, a war crime. 
The photograph showed that they had thrown the patients out of their beds and onto the floor and tied their hands behind their backs. They'd done the same with the doctors. There were some questions about it. Reporters asked, why attack the hospital? And they were told that the hospital was a legitimate target. The reason was that it was producing propaganda for the rebels, namely casualty figures. So therefore, it was an entirely legitimate target to destroy, to prevent this propaganda agency from continuing to spew forth its violent materials, end quote. I could go on and on, and if you want to read Chomsky's opinion on Chris Kyle, the citation's on my website. I only want to point out that the difference between Chomsky and Kyle is who they want to protect. Kyle wants to protect Americans. He's obsessed with it, admittedly. Chomsky wants to protect the entire world. And I want to say on record that I agree with Chomsky that the Iraq war was wrong, totally. I'm just pointing out Chomsky's obsession with protecting the entire world can lead to his own people being hurt. Kyle's obsession with protecting his own people actually solidifies and unifies his people, in this case soldiers serving in Iraq. Alright, so let's get back to Kyle's service in Iraq. The Iraq regime folded the way a corrupt preacher pockets a donation. The official military history puts it this way, quote, Despite facing unexpectedly tenacious, irregular Iraqi defense in southern Iraq, U.S. and coalition forces succeeded in forcing regime change in just under three weeks, far ahead of the 70 to 120 days the invasion plan envisioned. The near-simultaneous collapse of Basra and Baghdad, two of Iraq's three largest cities, along with Saddam's abrupt departure, was greeted by military leaders as the effective destruction of the regime. Forced to adapt quickly to several unexpected factors, coalition units had used rapid maneuver and overwhelming firepower to destroy the sizable Iraqi security and intelligence forces in less than a month, end quote. But what does all this have to do with Chris Kyle? Well, the American-led coalition force heavily depended on special forces during the invasion. The official military history explains, quote, The invasion also marked one of the largest, if not the largest, special forces operations in history, involving almost all of Air Force Special Operations Command, two special forces groups, and part of a third group, a naval special warfare group. For the bulk of the invasion, combat operations remain largely compartmentalized between special operations and conventional forces, with each having mostly separate missions, terrain, and key tasks. On the surface, the special operations forces component of the invasion appeared to validate pre-existing expectations of those forces' capacities. With a comparatively small number of troops, special operations forces completed all of their tasks except locating the non-existent SCUD launch points in western and northern Iraq and supported conventional forces' efforts to identify and destroy Iraqi irregular forces." Quote. This was Chris Kyle's role during the first three weeks of the invasion, supporting conventional forces. Then the insurgency began, and Kyle could never have imagined the staggering amount of combat he would soon find himself in. In the elation that followed the capture of Iraq's largest cities, Kyle and his Charlie platoon were rotated back to America. It was rough for Kyle to transition back into normal civilian life. His wife would later say he had trouble sleeping and loud noises would bother him. In addition, he missed his fellow soldiers and he wanted to get back to his job. Still, there were good things about being back. During this time in America, Chris welcomed his first son, Colton. And Chris was using his time wisely. He enrolled in past sniper school where he learned not only the fine points of shooting, 
but also how to camouflage himself and sneak almost anywhere without being seen. To put it succinctly, Chris Kyle was becoming one of the most highly trained warriors America can produce, and soon he would be going back to war. In December 2003, Saddam Hussein was captured and put on trial. A U.S.-backed Iraqi-run government was put into place. But an insurgency of Islamic radicals and fundamentalists spread havoc throughout the country. Into this insurgency, Chris Kyle stepped back into war in September of 2004. As his unit trained for one of the bloodiest battles the U.S. military has fought since the Vietnam War, the Battle of Fallujah, Kyle was assigned to provide sniper cover to Polish special forces. This part of his service, which lasted just a few weeks, was uneventful. Although Chris did take the time to customize his gear by mixing Polish equipment, standard-issue United States equipment, and his own personal gear into a custom loadout that made him a more effective warrior. Then the Battle of Fallujah came. It was Chris's first major combat assignment after returning to Iraq. His job was to help tens of thousands of American military personnel wrest Fallujah, a city south of Baghdad, from insurgent control. Here's how one historian describes Fallujah, quote, the city of Fallujah represented the most difficult urban area in the region. Located on the banks of the Euphrates River, Fallujah, known as the City of Mosques, with over 200 in the city, had been a hotbed for conservative Sunni Islam and criminal activity under the previous Saddam regime, end quote. For Kyle, Fallujah was the capital of insurgent resistance. He describes the city in his autobiography, American Sniper, like this, quote, the insurgents in Fallujah were one part terrorists, another part criminal gangs. They would plant IEDs, kidnap officials and their families, attack American convoys, kill Iraqis who didn't share their faith or politics, anything and everything they could think of. Fallujah had become their safe haven, an anti-capital of Iraq dedicated to overthrowing the interim government. Quote, Alexis Burling provides a succinct overview of the attack on Fallujah, so I'll just quote her, quote, on November 7, 2004, Chris Kyle and members of SEAL Team 3, 5, and 8 joined between 10,000 and 15,000 U.S. soldiers and Marines in their entrance into Fallujah, the center of radical Islam in the already radicalized nation of Iraq. A city of narrow streets, moss domes, and sparse vegetation, Fallujah was riddled with flying bullets, swirling dust clouds, and deafening explosions, end quote. Thousands of human beings would be killed or wounded in the fighting that followed, including hundreds of Americans. David Balavia was one of the men tasked with taking the city. He was on the tip of the spear, and this is what he saw at the Second Battle of Fallujah. Quote, the first faint streaks of dawn spread over the horizon as all around us crews got ready to drive us to the pre-staging area. There we'll fuel up and then head to the attack position. I light a smoke. It's almost nine o'clock. The morning is crisp, cold, and punctuated by distant artillery barrages. Every few minutes, an Apache attack helicopter thunders overhead. Fast-moving fighter jets crisscross the sky above them. Say what you want about America, but she definitely knows how to concentrate power. Our task force is a hundred alligator head-shaped Bradley fighting vehicle strong. Our commanding officer's vehicle runs the length of our column like a steel sheepdog shepherding us forward. As he passes, I hear him screaming, Let's go! 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 A half hour later, we reach the attack position, which is nothing but a vast stretch of empty desert, just over a mile northeast of Fallujah. The ramp drops and we spill out into the morning. We're surrounded by vehicles from horizon to horizon. They carpet the desert like long trails of ants. 
There are gun tracks and five tons, armored personnel carriers, Humvees, Bradleys, and Abrams tanks. To the west, I can see the Marines' light armored vehicles and their boat-shaped amphibious vehicles. Beyond them, a new striker unit is taking its position on the western flank. Longbow Apache helicopters buzz protectively over them. And then the Paladins, 155mm self-propelled artillery tracks, essentially gigantic cannons on wheels, unleash their firepower. Huge shells pass overhead to burst inside the city. The ground quakes. The Air Force, Navy, and Marines send waves of F-16 and F-18 fighter jets. They whistle over the city to drop laser-guided bombs and satellite light-guided joint direct attack munitions. The womp womp of their detonations can be both heard and felt, even at this distance. Bombs explode. More shells fall on the city. The pre-assault bombardment swells to a climax. Every three or four seconds, a 155mm shell lands. Larger, deeper thumps shake the Brad vehicle. Another volley of 155mm artillery explodes much closer than usual. The Brad quivers from the concussion wave. I can hear a flight of jets surge onto the scene, and I picture their strafing runs along the northern edge of the city. An AC-130 Spectre gunship rumbles overhead at 10,000 feet and spits out greetings to the insurgents with its whirling Gatling guns and 105mm howitzer. There's nothing more terrifying than the sight and sounds of that gunship, with its wings banked, it unloads an unbelievable barrage of bullets and shells into its targets. Gerboom, gerboom. The AC-130 is the closest man has come to an imitation of the fist of God. The driver shifts into gear. We surge forward. This is it, I say. This is it. The Brad charges forward again. All around us, every vehicle, every tank, and APC takes off in one pell-mell chase for the breach entry point. It is total chaos. As our Brad works up to its top speed, we're thrown around like bowling pins. My head cracks against the bulkhead, then I'm thrown against the ramp. Just as I recover, Lawson's Kevlar slams into my chin. Gear starts flying all around us. A machine gun belt lands on top of us and uncoils like a snake. More belts fall, and soon we're tangled in our own ammunition. Outside, the explosions grow in volume and intensity. I look out the periscope viewer in the back of the Bradley. Blurring, jarring images flash before me. I see tracers and fire and more light on the horizon. I sweep my eyes left and catch sight of the Bradleys on either side of us, keeping abreast of us. The radio crackles, go, go, go! On the fly, we swing into a column. We close on the railroad embankment. Wham! Our Brad rocks on his tracks. An IED is exploded close by. Another one detonates, then another. Soon we're engulfed in a series of near-continuous explosions. Shrapnel winds off our thick metal hides. More of it clatters overhead or strikes our turret. Don't break track, please. God, don't break, baby. Hold it together, girl. Flares and flashes line the horizon. Off to the west, I see a series of IEDs going off. The Marines are getting hit hard, just like we are. We're in a column now, my Brad in the lead. Ahead, we see the breach. We steer through it, careful to stay between the chemical lights and tape the engineers have used to mark the lane they've cleared for us. In seconds, we're out the other side and racing for the city. Ahead is an Abrams tank battering its way forward. Another stands to one side, spewing flames from the tube of its 120 millimeter gun. Boom! An RPG. Boom, boom! 
boom! Two more strike nearby. More IEDs explode. Mines, more explosions, dirt, smoke. Flames erupt all around us. We're surrounded by detonations, and our brads plow through the squalls of shrapnel, which sound like hail on a tin roof. Another rocket sizzles into Staff Sergeant McDaniels Bradley to our right. It explodes below the turret. Behind us, Sergeant First Class Cantrell's Brad takes a direct hit and bursts into flames. Fire scorches its flanks as the vehicle lurches forward. Seconds later, it runs across an IED, which explodes with such force that the entire back end of the Bradley leaves the desert floor. It plummets back down, causing the rig to rock backwards and lift the nose up. Shit! Voices boom over the radio. Oh shit! You're out of the lane! Get to the right! Get to the right! We start to swing back to the lane. A shattering blast engulfs us. The back end of our Bradley is thrown upward. Dust and smoke spiral around us. I choke and gag and try to scream for my guys. All that comes out is a hoarse rasp. I can't hear anyone respond. Lawson, just inches away, doesn't answer me either. I wonder if I've been deafened by the blast or maybe everyone but me is dead. Smoke. Smoke everywhere. Eyes burning. I suck air, which scars my throat. I paw at my eyes, smearing grime across both cheeks. I blink. The Brad's interior comes into view. Through the smoke, I see the red lights on our gunner's panel. Gossard is firing the 25mm cannon, but I can't hear it. All I hear is a steady, high-pitched buzz. Lungs full of smoke, I try to shout again. Nothing comes out. All that comes out is a horse. Smack my knees! Smack my knees if you're okay! Lawson turns and puts his lips close to my ear. He must be okay. He's alive anyway. He's shouting something, but I can't hear any of it. Dim shapes take form around me. I see my men darken silhouettes inside our titanium box. I can't tell if anyone else is alive or dead. End quote. Such was the way American firepower and American warriors ripped open the city of Fallujah, a giant can opener prying open a can of Islamic fundamentalism. A few miles away, Kyle was entering Fallujah in a similar but safer manner. Kyle described his fighting on the first few days of the battle with these words, quote, On November 8, just before daybreak, we loaded up and began trundling towards the edge of the city. There was maximum adrenaline inside that tin can on treads. We were ready to get it on. Our destination was an apartment complex overlooking the northwestern corner of the city. Roughly 800 yards from the start of the city proper, the buildings had a perfect view of the area where our marines were going to launch their assault, an excellent location for snipers. All we had to do was take it. Five minutes! yelled one of the NCOs. I hooked one arm through my ruck and got a good grip on my gun. The Amtrak jerked to a halt. The rear ramp slammed down, and I leapt out with the others, running towards a small grove with some trees and rocks for cover. I hit the dirt, got the ruck next to me, and began scanning the building, watching for anything suspicious. I worked my eyes around the windows and the surrounding area, expecting all the while to be shot at. The Marines, meanwhile, poured out their vehicles. The Marines just kept coming, swarming over the complex. They started kicking in doors. I couldn't hear much, just the loud echoes of shotguns that they used to blow out the locks. The Marines detained a few women who had been outside, but otherwise the yard around the building was vacant. My eyes never stopped moving. I scanned constantly, trying to find something, but we had no contacts that morning. In the afternoon, I repositioned to cover Marines assaulting across railroad tracks down tightly packed geometrical streets. Looking out the window, I was anxious for the battle to start. I wanted a target. I wanted to shoot someone. I didn't have to wait all that long. 
From the building, I had a prime view across to a key railroad track in the berm, and then beyond that to the city. I started getting killed soon after I got on the gun. Most were back in the area near the city. Insurgents would move into that area, trying to get into position to attack or maybe spy on the Marines. They were about 800 meters away across the railroad tracks and below the berm, so probably in their mind they couldn't be seen and were safe. They were badly mistaken. After the first kill, the others came easy. I didn't have to psych myself up or do anything special mentally. I looked through the scope, get my target in the crosshairs, and kill my enemy before he kills one of my people. I got three that day. As the Marines moved into the city, they soon reached a position where we could no longer cover them from the apartment towers we were in. We came down ready for the next phase, working in the city itself. I was assigned to help the Marine units on the western side of the city. They were the first wave of the assault, sweeping down block by block. Another company would come in behind them, securing the area and making sure that none of the insurgents snuck back in behind them. The idea was to clear Fallujah out block by block, end quote. Later, Chris described the setting of his first major battle, quote, The properties in this part of the city, as in many Iraqi cities, were walled off from their neighbors by thick brick and stucco walls. There were always nooks and crannies for insurgents to hide in. The backyards, usually flat with hard dirt or even cement, were rectangular mazes. It was a dry, dusty place. I worked with marine snipers for several days during the first week or so of that phase of the assault. We mostly worked from the roofs, providing sniper cover for the marines as they worked the streets below us. End quote. And when you read Kyle's autobiography, you get the feeling he was quite safe during most of the Battle of Fallujah. Working from rooftops, which had low concrete walls, provided ideal cover for snipers and the Iraqi insurgents like General Jap during the Tet Offensive. They had no answer to the vastly superior technological wonder weapons the United States was utilizing in the battle. Still, there were some close calls. Chris picks up the story, quote, It was in the afternoon that I set up back from a window on the top floor. The Marines on the ground had started to take fire on the streets ahead. I began covering them, taking down targets one by one. The Iraqis started firing back at me, fortunately not too accurately, which was usually the way they shot. Then an RPG hit the side of the house and the wall took the brunt of the explosion, which was good news and bad news. On the plus side, it saved me from getting blasted. But the explosion also took down a good chunk of the wall. It crashed into my legs, slamming my knees into the concrete and temporarily pinning me there. It hurt like hell. I kicked some of the rubble off and kept firing at the bastards down the block. Everybody okay? Yelled one of the other boys I was with. I'm good, I'm good. I yelled back, but my legs were screaming the opposite. They hurt like a son of a bitch. The insurgents pulled back, then things stoked up again. That was the way the battle would always go, a lull followed by an intense exchange, then another lull. When the firefight finally stopped, I got up and climbed out of the room. I limped for a while after that, a long while, really. I eventually had to have surgery on both knees, though I kept putting it off for a couple of years. I didn't go to a doctor. You go to the doctor and you get pulled out. I knew I could get by and there was no way I was going to miss this end, quote. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given the worldview of the elite in the Western world today, Kyle was most concerned about politicians and lawyers prosecuting him for fighting rather than the insurgents he was facing in the streets of Fallujah. Here's how Kyle puts it in his book, American Sniper. Quote, you cannot be afraid to take your shot. When you see someone with an IED or a rifle maneuvering towards your men, you have a clear reason to fire. The rules of engagement were specific, and in most cases, the danger was obvious. But there were times when it wasn't exactly clear, when a person almost surely was an insurgent, probably doing evil, 
But there was still some doubt because of the circumstances or the surroundings. The way he moved, for example, wasn't towards an area where troops were. A lot of times, a guy seemed to be acting macho for friends, completely unaware that I was watching him or that there were American troops nearby. Those shots I did not take. You couldn't. You had to worry about your own ass. Make an unjustified shot and you could be charged with murder. Often would sit there and think, I know this is bad. I saw him doing such and such down the street the other day, but here he's not doing anything, and if I shoot him, I won't be able to justify it for the lawyers. I'll fry. Like I said, there is paperwork for everything. Every confirmed kill had documentation, supporting evidence, and a witness. So I wouldn't shoot. There weren't a lot of those, especially in Fallujah, but I was always extremely aware of the fact that every killing might have to be justified to lawyers. My attitude was, if my justification is I thought my target would do something bad, then I wasn't justified. He had to be doing something bad. Even with that standard, there were plenty of targets. I was averaging two or three a day, occasionally less, sometimes much, much more, with no end in sight, end quote. It was at Fallujah that Kyle got his first combat medal, a bronze star with a V, for valor in combat. Chris didn't think too much about medals. He would later say this about his medals, quote, Medals are all right, but they have a lot to do with politics, and I'm not a fan of politics. All told, I would end my career as a SEAL with two silver stars and five bronze medals, all for valor. I'm proud of my service, but I sure as hell didn't do it for any medal. They don't make me any better or less than any other guy who served. Medals never tell the whole story. And like I said, in the end, they've become more political than accurate. I've seen men who deserved a lot more and men who deserved a lot less rewarded by higher-ups negotiating for whatever public cause they were working on at the time. For all these reasons, they are not on display at my house or in my office. End quote. Anyway, here's how Kyle won his first medal. Chris was exiting a building when he heard a giant firefight break out down the street. The radio crackled to life with the sound of a terrified Marine. We've got multiple men down! Help! Chris didn't hesitate. He immediately started making his way towards the gun battle. Moving to another house to try and set up a firing position, Chris and a fellow soldier found four Marines, two of whom were wounded. The two who were not wounded told Kyle how to locate the firefight, and Chris set out to join the battle, the two healthy Marines following him. Chris picks up the story, quote, just as I came around the corner, back out onto the main street, there was an explosion behind me. An insurgent had seen us coming and tossed a grenade. One of the Marines following me went down. After we pulled the injured kid away from the alley, a medic went to work on him. Meanwhile, I took the rest of the Marines and continued down the road in the direction of the insurgent stronghold. We found a second group of Marines huddled at a nearby corner, pinned down by fire from the house. I got everyone together and told them that a small group of us would rush up the street while the others laid down fire. The trap Marines were about 50 yards away. Does it matter if you can see them or not? I told them. We're all just going to shoot anyway. All of us. I got up to start. A terrorist jumped up into the middle of the road and began unleashing hell on us, spitting bullets from a belt-fed weapon. Returning fire as best we could, we ducked back for cover. Everybody checked themselves for holes. Miraculously, no one had been shot. By now, somewhere between 15 and 20 Marines were there with me. All right, I told them. We're going to try it again. Let's do it this time, all right? I jumped out from around the corner, firing my weapon as I ran. I'd taken only a few steps when I realized that none of the Marines had followed me. Shit, 
I kept running. The insurgents began focusing their fire on me. I tucked my MK-11 under my arm and fired back as I ran. The semi-automatic is a great, versatile weapon, but in this particular situation, its 20-round magazine seemed awfully small. I blew through one mag, popped the release, slammed in a second, and kept firing. I found four men huddled near a wall not far from the house. It turned out that two of them were reporters who'd been embedded with the Marines. I'll cover you, I shouted. Get the hell out of here. I jumped up and laid down fire as they ran. The final Marine tapped me on the shoulder as he passed, signaling that he was the last man out. Ready to follow, I glanced to my right, checking my flank. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a body sprawled on the ground. He had Marine camo pants on. Where he came from, whether he'd been there when I arrived or crawled there from somewhere else, I have no idea. I ran over to him and saw that he'd been shot in both legs. I slapped a new mag into my gun, then grabbed the back of his body armor and pulled him with me as I retreated. At some point as I ran, one of the insurgents threw a frag. The grenade exploded somewhere nearby. Pieces of wall peppered my side from my butt cheek down to my knee. By some lucky chance, my pistol took the biggest fragment. It was pure luck. It might have put a hole in my leg. I might have been disabled. My butt was sore for a while, but it still seems to work well enough. Every time I use the bathroom, I get reminded of how I earned my bronze star for valor. End quote. Chris didn't just fight as a sniper. After watching the Marines enter numerous buildings, Chris observed they had not been properly trained in clearing buildings, but he had. He had to do something. He went down to help them, not with talk, not with training sessions and bullshit meetings, but with actual physical work. These are the kind of leaders we need all over the Western world. We're overrun with talkers, but who will kick down doors with you? Often Chris would lead the way straight down the front door, running into insurgent apartments the way frat boys run into bars, expertly working the room, sliding down the walls, and covering all angles. It was like watching Michelangelo paint. Then one day something crazy happened and Kyle almost lost his life. The details are in his book, American Sniper, so I'll just quote him, quote, we broke into one house with a large front room. We'd caught the inhabitants completely by surprise, but I was surprised as well. As I burst in, I saw a whole bunch of guys standing there in desert camouflage, the old brown chocolate chip stuff from Desert Storm and the first Gulf War. They were all wearing gear, and they were all Caucasian, including one or two with blonde hair, obviously not Iraqis or Arabs. What the hell? We looked at each other, and then something flicked in my brain, and I flicked the trigger on my M16, mowing them down. A half second's more hesitation, and I would have been the one bleeding out on the floor. They turned out to be Chechens, Muslims apparently recruited for a holy war against the West. I have no idea how many blocks, let alone how many houses we took down. The Marines were following a carefully laid out plan. We had to be at a certain spot each lunchtime, then reach another objective by nightfall. The entire invasion force moved across the city in choreographed order, making sure there were no holes or weak spots the insurgents could use to get behind us and attack. We would do a full search of each house. In this one house, we heard faint moans as we went down to the basement. <laughs> there were two men hanging from chains on the wall. One was dead, the other barely there. Both had been severely tortured with electric shock and God only knows what else. They were both Iraqi. The second man died while our corpsmen worked on him. There was a black banner on the floor. There were amputated limbs and more blood than you can imagine. It was a nasty-smelling place. One day, a group of Marines near us started getting fire from a minaret in a mosque a few blocks away. We could see where the gunman was shooting from, but we couldn't get a good shot on him. 
He had a perfect position, able to control a good part of the city below him. While ordinarily anything connected to a mosque would have been totally out of bounds, the sniper's presence made it a legitimate target. We called an airstrike on the tower, which had a high windowed dome at the top. The roof was made of panels of glass topped by a spike pole. We hunkered down as the aircraft came in, and the bomb flew through the sky, hit the top of the minaret, and went straight through one of the large glass panes at the top. It then continued down into a yard across the alley. There, it later exploded in the yard without much visible impact. The sniper surely would still be unimpaired. Son of a bitch, I said. He missed. Come on, let's go get the son of a bitch ourselves. We ran down a few blocks and entered the tower, climbing what seemed an endless flight of stairs. At any moment, we expected the sniper's security, or the sniper himself, to appear above us and start firing at us. No one did. When we made it to the top, we saw why. The sniper, alone in the building, had been decapitated by the bomb as it flew through the window. I think it was the best sniper shot I ever saw. After clearing the city house to house, the marines were hardly winded, but I lost over 20 pounds in those six or so weeks I was in Fallujah. Most of it I sweated off into the ground. It was exhausting work. I was 30, an old man on the streets of Fallujah. After a few weeks, Fallujah looked like a city from World War II, something out of a history book. The streets were covered with splinters and various debris. The city was a wreck. Squashed water bottles sat in the middle of the road next to piles of wood and twisted metal. We worked on one block of three-story buildings where the bottom level was filled with shops. Each of their awnings were covered with a thick layer of dust and grit, turning the bright colors of the fabric into a hazy blur. Metal shields blocked most of the storefronts. They were pockmarked with shrapnel chips, In quote. After Fallujah had been captured, Chris was tasked with cordoning off a certain area. In other words, he had to make sure no one entered the city. It was on this duty that Chris experienced one of his most spectacular sniper kills, quote, One day, a group of three insurgents appeared on the shore upriver, out of range at about 1,600 yards, that's just under a mile. A few had tried that before, standing there, knowing that we couldn't shoot them because they were so far out. Our rules of engagement allowed us to take them, but the distance was so great that it really didn't make sense to take a shot. Apparently realizing they were safe, they began mocking us like a bunch of juvenile delinquents. The commanding officer came over and started laughing at me as I eyed them through the scope. Chris, you ain't never going to reach those kids. Well, I didn't say I was going to try, but his words made it seem almost like a challenge. Some of the other Marines came over and told me more or less the same thing. Anytime someone tells me I can't do something, it gets me thinking I can do it. But 1,600 yards was so far away that my scope wouldn't even dial up the shooting solution. So I did a little mental calculation and adjusted my aim with the help of a tree behind one of the grinning insurgent idiots making fun of us. I took the shot. The moon, the earth, and the stars aligned. God blew on the bullet, and I gut-shot the jackass. His two buddies hauled ass out of there. Get him! Get him! Yeah, man! Shoot him! The truth is, I had been lucky as hell to hit the one I was aiming at. There was no way I was taking a shot at people who were running. That would turn out to be one of my longest confirmed kills in Iraq. End quote. Kyle, like other soldiers before him, only recounts a few of the battles he experienced during his time in combat. But what was it like to fight house to house in Fallujah? Jeremy Adam Bowen helps us understand. While Bowen was a regular army infantryman, he often fought alongside special forces from all military branches. In this interview, Bowen describes one night raid on two urban strongholds. It was his first contact with the enemy. Quote, we met up with the Special Forces guys to go in and take care of the mission, which was pretty simple. 
We weren't going into any buildings. All we had to do was secure the perimeter while the rangers inserted into the buildings and took out the targets. We had two missions that night. We hit one, packed up, and went to the next building, hit that one, and we were done. We called the area we were operating in Little Detroit, which was a pretty dangerous part of town. But we were fighting as Americans, and we had all kinds of technology. That's why we say the Army owns the night, because we had night vision, lasers, all that stuff. And the enemy didn't have that type of technology. That night, our job was easy. We jumped off our vehicles, and we had specific areas we were supposed to secure. In my area, there was a rifleman on my left side, and he had a roof over him he couldn't cover. So I was watching it for him, working in a buddy team system. So I'm checking on my buddy, and I look at the rooftop, and as soon as I do, I hear the distinctive sound of an AK-47 chambering around. I turned and saw a guy with an AK. He was a big guy, too. He was throwing down on me, drawing a bead right at me like a Western movie showdown with semi-automatic rifles. He was partly behind a pillar, and he came out to shoot in my direction, and I thought, oh, crap. Then I had my weapon up and I turned my laser sight on, lined it up with him just as easy as you point a finger, and I just started pulling the trigger over and over and I lasered a line of bullets into his chest. I was very nervous and I was shaken. And since I was so nervous, I was shooting all over the place. I put ten rounds down range at that one person and I obviously hit him. Then someone was running out the back door of the building we were raiding. My partner spun around and raised his rifle and shot the guy who was running out, and I shot the guy with a double tap as well. Then I looked back, and the guy that I initially shot was just standing there, rocking back and forth, and he's not dead yet. And so my team leader shot him again, and he hit the ground. It was almost like in the movies, when things just go into slow motion, you hear everything in a sort of superhero way. The whole world quiets down except for that one specific thing, and all I remember hearing, even with all the gunfire going off was the man I shot hitting the ground Whoop! and his leg curled up behind him unnaturally. By this time more guys were attacking us and our machine gunner was engaging them. One of the guys attacking us was behind a wall and my team leader said if that guy sticks his damn head up again shoot it off for him and sure enough the guy behind the wall stuck his head up and I put my laser on the man's profile and pulled the trigger. He was probably about 20 meters away. So we pulled back and brought a bigger machine gun up to suppress the entire area. And then it hit me instantly, like the worst flu symptoms you could ever imagine came over me. I just felt so sick, and I was shaking really bad. I was just in a state of shock. It later turned out that one of the men I killed was just a preteen. He was about 14, and it really bothered me. After that, I just suppressed the memory and pushed it to the back of my head. And by focusing on other missions I had to do, I was able to get over the initial shock. I still don't like talking about it, end quote. These were the kind of missions Kyle was participating in multiple times a week. Now, it's a fact Chris Kyle has saved numerous American lives during his time in Fallujah. He put his own ass on the line to do it. And how did the higher-up management types reward Chris for his work? By trying to put him in jail forever. Here's how it happened. One day, the Army requested sniper cover for the men. Chris explains what happened next. Quote, I went out with a small team set up on top of a floor on a nearby building and watched the area. Pretty soon, the convoy headed down the road. As I was watching the area, a man came out of a building near the road and began maneuvering in the direction of the convoy. He had an AK. I shot him. He went down. The convoy continued through. A bunch of other Iraqis came out and gathered around the guy I'd shot, but nobody made any threatening motions towards the convoy, so I didn't fire. A few minutes later, I heard on the radio that the Army is sending a unit out to investigate why I shot him. What the hell? I had already told the Army Command on the radio what had happened, but I got back on the radio and repeated it. I was surprised. They didn't believe me. 
There's the trust our managerial officer class has for their elite soldiers. A take commander came out and interviewed the dead man's wife. She told them her husband was on his way to the mosque carrying a Koran. Yeah, right. The story was ridiculous, but the officer, who I'm guessing hadn't been in Iraq very long, believed the woman. The soldiers began to look around for the rifle, but by the time so many people had been in the area, it was long gone. So the tank commander pointed out my position. Did the shot come from there? Yes, yes, said the woman, who of course had no idea where the shot had come from, since she hadn't been anywhere nearby. I know he's army because he's wearing an army uniform. Now I was two rooms deep with a screen in front of me wearing a gray jacket over my seal camis. Maybe she hallucinated in her grief, or maybe she just said whatever she thought would give me problems. We were recalled to base, and the entire platoon was put on stand-down. I was told I was not operationally available. I was confined to base while the Army investigated the incident further. The colonel wanted to interview me. My officer came with me. We were all pissed. The rules of engagement had been followed. I had plenty of witnesses. It was the Army investigators who had screwed up. I had trouble holding my tongue. At one point, I told the Army colonel, I don't shoot people with Korans. I'd like to, but I don't. I guess I was a little hot that day. Well, after three days, and God only knows how much other investigation, he finally realized that it had been a good kill and dropped the matter. But when that Army regiment asked for more overwatches, we told them to off. Anytime I shoot someone, you're just going to try and have me executed, I said. No way I'm helping you. End quote. Now, because of this petty army commissar, American soldiers were less safe and elite warriors were less effective. And this little story I just told you is happening all over the Western world. Chris Kyle got off lucky. Today, he'd probably be in jail for looking at an Iraqi the wrong way. All over the West, in the schools, universities, police departments, fire departments, hospitals, and militaries of Britain, Canada, America, and Western Europe, this same situation prevails. What was it, Aesop said? One day, two crabs came out from their home to take a stroll on the sand. Why in the world do you walk sideways like that? It's so ugly and undignified, said Mother Crab to her son. You should always walk straight forward with your toes turned out. Show me how to walk, Mother dear, answered the little crab obediently. I want to learn. So the old crab tried and tried and tried to walk straight forward, but she could walk sideways only, just like her son. And when she wanted to turn her toes out, she tripped and fell on her nose. And the moral of the story is, do not tell others how to act unless you can set a good example yourself. There's going to be a lot of broken lives, people in jail, schools failing, unsafe streets and rich, well-paid lawyers collecting lots of fat checks before the West realizes the moral of this little fable that's over 3,000 years old. A few weeks after the incident with the Army Commissar, Chris returned to California in the spring of 2005. He quickly became bored and longed to be back in combat with his fellow soldiers, plus things were strained with his wife. Taya would later describe this time like this, quote, I need to get to know Chris again. It was strange. There's so much anticipation. You miss them so much when they deploy and you want them to be home. And then when they are home, things aren't perfect. And you feel as if they should be perfect, depending on the deployment and what I've been through. I also had emotions ranging from sadness to anxiety to anger. When he came back after this deployment, I felt almost shy. I was a new mother and had been doing things on my own for months. We were both changing and growing in totally separate worlds. He had no first-hand knowledge of mine and I had no first-hand knowledge of his. I also felt bad for Chris. He was wondering what was wrong. There was distance between us that neither one of us could really fix or even talk about." End quote. 
It was at this time that Chris and Taya had a little girl named McKenna. And even though his wife begged him not to do it, Chris re-enlisted. Soon, in April of 2006, and two days after his daughter was born, Chris Kyle would be going back to war in a town called Ramadi. But that's where we'll pick this story up next month. And until then, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Now, if you'll excuse me, I've got to go shine a swivel chair with my ass with all the other social scientists. So pop one with me.